You are now listening to The Ecosystem. Welcome to The Ecosystem. I'm your host, Kelly Eco, and we are back. What better way to return than with an esteemed journalist, an esteemed award-winning journalist, an esteemed award-winning black journalist, football expert, The Athletic's very own Carl Anker. How you doing, brother? I'm good, thank you. I'm, I'm flattered by that introduction. How are you? <laughs> I'm good, man. I know it took a while to get this thing going, but you know, technology and whatnot, but I'm glad I've been trying to get you on for a minute because you are one of the most polarizing figures in football, in my opinion, because of <laughs> the way you approach the game, the way, the way, the way your fashion sense is, is, is on point, the way you carry yourself, you know, you're, you're one of them ones. So I'm very glad that you got to join me on my show. Appreciate you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I haven't been described as polarizing before. I like it. I like it. <laughs> So I want to get into, you know, the Premier League and specifically Manchester United. They currently sit in fifth place, three points off of fourth place Spurs with the game in hand. Last weekend, you know, a strange, I call it a strange loss to Aston Villa, 3-1. Before then, they were on a fairly good run of form following the Derby defeat. Um, but they're now a third way into the new season under Eric Ten Hag, 13 games under his belt. We've seen what a Ten Hag team can look like. I guess the culmination, and you wrote about this earlier after the Spurs game and how everything is kind of connected. But do you think we've seen Ten Hag's stamp truly on this team at this point of the season? Well, that's a good question. I'd say almost. Um, I don't think we've seen a Ten Hag team yet. I think that's a work in progress. I think what you're seeing is the implementation of Ten Hag principles on a squad that will drastically change in the next two to three years. So as we're talking right now, I don't think Ten Hag's been able to play his best front four yet because that will require Anti Martial to be able to play 90 minutes and he's not played 90 minutes too much. Uh, I also think he's still seeking the best combination from his wide players. As while Anthony looks to be the preferred option on the right-hand side, there's still a question of does he continue with Jadon Sancho on the left or does he continue with, with Marcus Rashford? So right now, Ten Hag is, you know, I think after the defeat against Brentford, the 4-0, he applied the handbrake and took a sort of pragmatic approach. And then after the defeat, the humbling defeat against Manchester City, it wasn't a handbrake, but he, he tweaked things a little bit. Um, and I think he has taught page five, up to page five of his playbook. But the question is, will he get to teach you know, all 35 pages, shall we say. How much of that, you know, not having Anthony Martial affected at least the beginning of the year because, you know, you go through preseason, you you get to learn a certain style of football that he wants to implement and boom, he goes down hurt, you know, then he comes back, goes down again. How much of that is the inconsistency? I think that's probably harmed the attack as a whole. Right. It has made a... Difficult situation with Cristiano Ronaldo, possibly even trickier. Always also, I mean, it's made it trickier and it's also made things simpler because 
Ten Hag has to use Ronaldo to an extent because there is no one else. Um, so there's that. I do think there are two to three players in that Manchester United squad, if not the first 11, that are quite eager for Martial to gain full fitness so they can play even better. Uh, but other than that, yeah, I, I think what you're often seeing with, with Ten Hag is he, he is having to think on the fly and he's having to not so much put square pegs in round holes, but right. al- almost shaving down some of the pegs just to make sure they fit perfectly. Does that parlay into you know their inability to score, I guess, compared to the rest of the top six? You look at, I think they scored 18 goals this season, and then you look at teams like Arsenal who have scored you know, 31. How much of that finding the right front four mix goes into, you know, getting consistency, getting an attacking because there have been spells, there have been good spells of football with this United front four, but it's just been too much stop start. Yeah, I, I totally agree there. I think that United front four is probably performing to par. Uh, Marcus Rashford has had a hit the ground running and as we're talking right now, he's just been confirmed in the England squad where that wasn't necessarily a guarantee after the way he played last season. Right. Uh, Jaden Sancho has not made the England squad and there's very little question mark or fanfare of that. That says a lot to how Sancho's season has been stop-start and not particularly impressive under Ten Hag. Before the season started, I, I did a piece on The Athletic and I, I just said, you know, it looks as if there might not be enough goals in this team, even if Cristiano Ronaldo does stay. I think there's maybe 15 to 20 goals missing, so to speak. Uh, if you look at the averages every single player in that front four typically gets, which means one or two things. One, Ten Hag needs to find a particular automatism or choreographed move that he can use to constantly guarantee uh, three or four good chances per game. Or two, boy, you better be lucky with penalties. <laughs> Is You know, with, with Ronaldo, I think it's so interesting because, and you talked a lot about this a lot, with him having to kind of curtail his style Mm -hmm. to fit a Ten Hag system. But as the days and weeks go on and on, it just seems untenable. And I want to see if you think this situation will solve itself after the World Cup, if that means him fully buying into the team for the rest of the season or him, you know, being shipped off to a new home. Do you see, give me the macro view of the Ronaldo situation right now and, and how the World Cup affects that. The simplest way I can put it to you, Kelly, as a man who covers basketball, is if I ask you the same question, but I replace Cristiano Ronaldo with Russell Westbrook and I replace Manchester United with the LA Lakers, what would you say? I would say it's one of those things where you're kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't, where... Russell Westbrook is essentially tied to the Lakers. There's no, the market for him is minimal. Mm-hmm. So you kind of have to make it work mm-hmm. like a bad marriage. Almost you kind of have to thug it out. Um, he has to change his style of play, which he's tried to a certain extent, mm-hmm. you know, coming off the bench, um, being more of a facilitator, being more of a kind of small ball destroyer. But Everyone knows, you know, you can't rest on your laurels because you know Russ is this great NBA player who's had all these accolades and accomplishments, but the game has changed. And if you want to fit 
you know, Darwin Ham style of play, you're going to have to change your way. And that comes from a mental side first. With Ronaldo, it seems like kind of the same thing where he he's done this great thing for so long. And, and who are you to tell him that scored 700 career club goals that what he's doing isn't working, right? So, but on the other hand, you've seen how they've looked without him and they play fast, they play free-flowing, they switch the flanks and it looks good. But you're thin on bodies up front. You know, you can't rely on the health of Anthony Martial. Rashford, you know, he's always going to be somebody who in theory on paper should be a brilliant number nine or a wide player, but he goes through his peaks and troughs. Mm -hmm. Um, You kind of, without the market, and it's kind of hard to bring in guys in January, you know, it doesn't typically happen at this level. Um, So I, I just think they're stuck. You know, the wages are too much. He's not good. I don't think he's taking a wage cut. Um, and that goes back to the whole the mental thing. Like, why should he bend himself to to accommodate others? You know, he's Cristiano Ronaldo, for goodness sake. So <laughs> he's been champion his whole life as this king of football, and, and rightfully so. So it's it's kind of a a tough thing to 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 accomplish. Thank you for answering your own question. <laughs> <laughs> I got you. I got you. This is why this is why interviewing a journalist is hard because eventually they just end up interviewing you. Um, but yeah, I, I think I think there are there are distinct parallels to be made b- between Russell Westbrook's stint at the right. Lakers and Cristiano's time at Manchester United. Uh, I enjoy Shannon Sharp on Undisputed, uh, and yeah. I, I believe Shannon once said there are two opponents you can never beat, and that's Father Time and Mother Nature. Um, and I think, right. yeah, we're at a stage with Cristiano Ronaldo where father time is catching up with him. He is not the fastest football player on that pitch anymore, right? There are three or four times I've watched him this season where he is in a foot race and a younger player has caught up with him and took the ball away from him. Right. Or he has trapped the ball with one foot and as he's beginning to make the motion to spin around and get the shot away, uh, someone's blocked him. So that's father time catching up with him. Uh, and mother nature... Well, when Father Time is catching up with him that way as a striker, as an older striker, what you should do is run less. Uh, and during preseason, I watched Ronaldo, who was 37, play up front against Rayo Vanacano with Roundel Falcao, who was 36 and had two massive knee injuries. And right. Falcao, now he's playing for Vallecano, he's not going to play Champions League football, but he's he wasn't as good as Ronaldo, Cristiano Ronaldo was. And went in their peak and he's not as good as Ronaldo now. But the thing about Falcao was he spent the entirety of that game just stood in between Manchester United centre-backs. He went, yep. you know what? I, I can't I can't do as much as I used to, but what I can do is occupy you two and wait for the other teammates to bring me the ball and then use my movement to, to still be effective. Whereas Ronaldo is dropping deep uh, and he hasn't got a passing game for that. He can do some passes, but he's not a great passer with the ball. You know, everything about Ronaldo has been mercilessly honed for one goal, and that is scoring as many goals as possible. So he doesn't necessarily right. have have the passing game or, or the rest of it to be a facilitator. So if he wants to keep scoring goals, he's, he needs to just stay up top. Don't drop up. Don't drop deep. But he he's he's got an affinity for the ball. He's a bit of a ball magnet, which causes a lot of disruption when United are trying to build, a, build up uh, through the lines. United, of the top six teams, Manchester United are probably the weakest at getting the ball from their penalty area to the opposition's penalty area already. 
And then on top of that, you've got Ronaldo who drops deep and causes loads of disruption. There's been th two or three times this season where Ronaldo is out on the wing on the ball and you're going, what are you doing? You're trying to send in crosses that you yourself should be, you sh yourself should be on the end of. Now, if you're a Ronaldo fan, you'd say that's Ronaldo getting frustrated because his teammates aren't doing their job properly. But at some point, especially when you're not the, the player you used to be, and I think we're all in agreement, even if you love Ronaldo and think he's the greatest football player of all time, he's not the guy he was in 2014. He's not the guy he was in 2015, you know, when he was racking up all them Ballon d'Ors and Champions Leagues. Right. He has, to, he has to relinquish the, the ball to the teammates and let, and let them try and get him things. Uh, something I found was really interesting, their 3-1 defeat to Aston Villa was Manchester United just tried loads of crosses. Uh, Ronaldo is not the quickest with his feet, but he's still one of the best football players in the air. Uh, and it makes sense that Man United players would go, you know what, I'm just going to try and stick on the back post and, and wait for Ronaldo to do it. But they tried so many that I thought it was a tactical instruction from Ten Hag. And then when I asked Ten Hag about it at full time, he went, no, that was stupid. And literally, he said, no, that was stupid. Uh, and then he, he he expressed his frustration at how how they constantly rushed that that those crosses. Right. And he said it, there was only one occasion on the Christian Eriksen where he took a moment just to wait for everyone to be set, and then he crossed the ball in. So it, it's a jarring clash. And if you're listening to this and, and you watch basketball, yeah, I I would describe it very much as Westbrook esque. Is is there a way to? And you talked about United's inability to bring the progress the brawl through the thirds. Is there a way to combat that maybe with possibly pushing Ericsson up higher up or maybe trying Casemiro with Fred or what so, is the the antidote for that? The best the the, the best way Ten Hag views it is to is to play Christian Ericsson as as the number eight. So Ericsson starts in the pivot next to what is now Casemiro, used to be Scott McTominay. And Ericsson traditionally, you know, for the majority of his career, was a number 10. He, he was the furthest, most advanced of the central midfielders. But now he's in this deeper role. Played a little bit at Brentford and now he's playing at Manchester United. And he seems now to be the person responsible for that ball progression in that, you know, Manchester United don't kick it short from goal kicks because Brentford told them, oh, that's what happens if you try it. Uh, but when the ball gets to Ericsson, it's now up to him to get the ball from the centre circle to the edge of the, the opposition's penalty area. Uh, and also, I think, Ericsson is in a sort of free eight position. So not quite as good as Kevin De Bruyne for Manchester City, but he will also advance and join their front four at times, uh, which means Casemiro has quite a lot of space to manage as the deepest line midfielder. Against Aston Villa, he had too much space to manage because not only was Ericsson getting forward, but Donny van der Beek was also vacating the number 10 position. So it was just far too much space for Casemiro. Um, other players who will help with ball progression, Luke Shaw, is very, very important to, to bring the ball up from the left-hand side. Uh, and Anthony seems to be developing as bring up on the right-hand side as well. So those are the main methods. But it's not it's not ball progression in the same way Manchester City does it or, or in the same way that Liverpool do it. You know, right. Not as well. You know, Liverpool don't do it as well as they did last year, but not as well as them. And that is concerning. I think Manchester United's attack and the way Manchester United attack has improved from last season. But in the top four race, they are still outsiders. So that's a good thing you brought up because, and in the NBA, it's a bit similar, but I wanted to ask you, because in the NBA, if you're going to rebuild, you're not expected to contend, right? I know this season we've seen teams like Utah and San Antonio be kind of surprises, but 
on the on the whole, as a rebuilding franchise, you're expected to lose. Now, in football, you could argue that United is in a rebuild, right? But mm-hmm. when you look at the table, they are still within striking distance of a Champions League spot. So is it possible to rebuild and contend in a, in a reasonable manner in football? Yes. That's me with a question mark at the end, the upward inflection. Uh, <laughs> Brendan Rodgers, who is the manager of Leicester City, once described football management as the art of flying a plane while you're also building it at the same time. Uh, and I'm always, I think football is very, very victim to what I ter- what is known as mission creep. So you start off trying to do one thing and then eventually over time your mission changes based on your window of opportunity, who gets hurt and whatnot, you know. Uh, a very good example of mission creep is uh, did you watch Game of Thrones? Yes. Right. Oh, I so, watched House of Dragons, so I didn't watch Game of Thrones. Okay, so but you're aware of the Night's Watch. Yes. Right. So the Night's Watch in Game of Thrones, when the Night's Watch was originally founded hundreds and hundreds of years ago, uh after the White Walkers originally defeated, the Night's Watch were there to stop White Walkers and stop the Night's King. Uh, and then by the time Game of Thrones started, they hadn't seen White Walkers in hundreds of years, so they thought their mission was kill the wildlings. Uh, and then Jon Snow came, you know, turned up and was like, lads, no, the mission isn't Wildlings. It's about the Night's Watch. Uh, and I think that's what happens in football management in that you often start the season and go, we are going to try and do this. Uh, and then you, you know, a star player gets injured or a certain player you want to get in, in the transfer and didn't turn up or your rivals have improved far quicker than you predicted or they've uh, declined far quicker than you, even, than you thought of. Right. I think everyone, right. I think a lot of people going into this season thought the top four, I thought the top two clubs in England would be Manchester City and Liverpool. Uh, and Liverpool aren't there in the top four right now. They're, they're, they're a little bit always behind. But also, Arsenal have kicked on far quicker than a lot of people other than Arsenal fans predicted. So United probably started the season going, you know what, we're probably going to finish, we've got an outside chance of finishing fourth. United, you know, City, Liverpool, Chelsea and and Spurs look like the four strongest teams and we can probably be fifth but we've also got to watch for Arsenal then a couple of games have kicked on and you're going well Spurs don't look too good anymore so we won't be able to pull ahead of them but Arsenal have completely jumped in front of us and Chelsea are now in flux so then it's this thing of Ten Hag going do you change the, your, your initial plan in the summer uh, and that you know that requires sometimes seizing the opportunity that might not have been there previously so the January transfer window will be a big moment for a number of clubs who gets injured at the World Cup or who has a good World Cup will be will be a massive factor. Ten Hag himself has been very coy and cautious about what his aims are for the season. If you ask him what do you want to do, he always gives you a stock. We want to win every game because I think he doesn't want to say <laughs> I think he doesn't want to set expectations too high or necessarily yeah. too low, which is the other very scary thing for a Manchester United manager. You can set things too low and then cause the fan base to turn on you. Right. So, in any case, I, I do think that the World Cup will be a much-needed reset period for for United and other clubs that have gone through, you know, instability. But speaking of the World Cup, it's ten days away. I can't Today we just it. saw. We just it's crazy. We just saw England's. Well, actually, first of all, how do you feel about a November World Cup? Is that I know it's 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 new, but what are your thoughts on? I guess the timing of everything. My thoughts on timing like this is ridiculous. Uh, well, one, this is ridiculous and everyone's exhausted. Two, this might cause uh, 
the strangest World Cup we've seen since the last one. And three, uh, and I'm going to put on my environmentalist hat a little bit, this might be the first of many Winter World Cups we have because climate emergency is making things too hot for everyone. Oh, oh okay. So we'll see. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, you say it's 10 days then at World Cup and I'm just overwhelmed. <laughs> I think a lot yeah. of people are overwhelmed. Uh, I'm, I'm, we're, we're recording this just you know four hours before Manchester United play a League Cup game against Aston Villa and then they've got one more game to play on Sunday. And honestly... If you are any of those Man United star, starting players and you're thinking, I've got to play two more games before the World Cup starts in 10 days. Oof. Oof. Yes, it's, it's a lot. It's knackering. <laughs> well, you know, England squad was released today and I'm going to go through real quick. The goalkeepers, Jordan Pickford, Nick Pope, and Ramsdale. Mm-hmm. Defenders, Trent Alexander-Arnold, Connor Cody, Eric Dyer, Harry Maguire, Luke Shaw, John Stones, Karen Trippier, Kyle Walker, Ben White. Midfielders, Jude Bellingham, Connor Gallagher, Jordan Henderson, Mason Mount, my good friend Calvin Phillips, Declan <laughs> Rice. And the forwards, Phil Foden, Jack Grealish, Harry Kane, James Madison, Marcus Rashford, Bukayo Saka, Raheem Sterling, and Callum Wilson. Right off the bat, who is your surprising snub if you had to give you know two or three snubs from this squad? Uh... Fiaco Tomori from AC Milan was my my big sort yeah. of... That's a shame. Uh, I did a piece last month on Harry Maguire and Harry Maguire's form uh, and, and sort of went, look, Gareth Southgate loves Harry Maguire, but why? And I also said, if if Maguire can't fix his form, these are the players Southgate can pick. Um, and I said that Tomori is the sensible option, but I didn't believe Southgate would pick him because Southgate is a very particular football manager. Um, and I think that particular nature he has meant that Tomori was always an outside chance. So I, you know, it's one of those things where if I was the England manager, I would have picked Tomori, but also I'm not the England manager. I'm a journalist who reports on the England manager. So fair enough. <laughs> uh, so yeah, Tomori was one that I went, mm, that's, a, that's a shame. But other than that, I don't think anyone who hasn't made the squad can feel aggrieved to it. I think Jared Bowen hasn't had a great start to this season. Uh, Jaden Sanchez a great, hasn't had a great start to this season. James Ward-Prowse hasn't had a great start to this season. Um, I would have preferred... Oh, tell a lie. I would have liked it if Tammy Abraham made the squad, but Tammy Abraham also hasn't pulled up any trees in this first half for the Serie A season. So, yeah, there's, there's a number of players there that I would, I would have gone, hmm, that's unwise. But also, based on what we know about Southgate, based on what I've studied of Southgate of right. Heroes, Makes sense. There's a number of players that I'm going, I can't believe Southgate's done that because it is incongruous with what Southgate has often said in, in previous. And, and that was kind of my next point. Like, who were the questionable inclusions? Uh, James Madison was one for me. So James Madison right okay. now is, is probably the inform attacking midfielder in the Premier League. That is English. He, this Leicester team is, hasn't been very good at the start of the season, but James Madison has been, uh, but James Madison has been good at playing hero ball. If that makes sense, just sort of, just give me the ball and I'll make stuff happen. And that's, that's good for Leicester. But the way the England team works, I think that's a stylistic clash. And also I think Madison and Southgate have previous history that has often meant Southgate overlooks Madison. So I was surprised to see him included. Uh, 
I know a lot of people wanted to see him included. I thought it wasn't going to happen. Uh, and now he's there. I'm like, oh, all right, fair enough. Similarly for Trent Alexander-Arnold, another player who, while, you know, has been very good for Liverpool, uh, is a very unique football player. And I don't think his game would mesh with what Southgate wants for England. Uh, and I know a number of people say, oh, Trent has to go. But I went, oh, you know, based on what England want to do and what Southgate wants to do for England, I wouldn't be surprised if he doesn't take him. So now he's there. I'm like, oh, fair enough. Um, the one that really has taken me by surprise is Conor Gallagher. So yes. last, season, last season on loan at Crystal Palace, this season back at Chelsea, very good attacking player, sort of, uh, an attacking box-to-box midfielder, makes loads of late entries, basically plays as a quasi-number 10, long shots, third-man runs and whatever. But I don't think he is that good out of possession. And such is the way Southgate wants the England team to work. I think your attacking endeavour is not as important as what you do when you're defending. Uh, so for Gallagher to be included was a very, that's a head-scratcher. So, uh Yeah. Southgate just said he's really impressed by Gallagher and how Gallagher presses the ball. And, um, well, FB ref doesn't have pressures in the way it used to, but I really want to look that up and fact check it because it doesn't quite smell right to me. (laughs) (laughs) But I guess for England, should we be regarding them as a true contender? I know the odds. (laughs) They didn't qualify Uh, for the last one. Um, Please, please. All right, before I answer your question, I want you to define what a true contender is. True contender means someone who can essentially book their place in the semifinals. Okay. That's a true uh, contender. No, I don't think England are a true contender. I think England are a... Are they a dark horse? Well, I don't know. Well, a dark horse, I've always done... You have to be, you have to be relatively unknown as a quantity to be a dark horse. Right, 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 right. Um, I, okay. I think England are... They've got a good squad. They've got a... They've got a certain way of playing that can be quite effective in international football. But they are likely to play France at the quarterfinal stage, if I, if I remember correctly. And even though the France squad isn't as shining as it used to be, I'm, I'm also going, well, hmm. I, I, look at, I look at the teams, I look at the squads. Uh, I think Brazil, true, true contender. Argentina, true contender. Spain, True contender, Germany, true contender, Portugal, contender. Then you're in England, contender. France, true contender, Belgium, eh. Uh, if this was basketball, I'd say England are Western Conference semi finalists. Okay. <laughs> right? Uh, I, I, I'd, yeah, I, yeah. If, if England yeah. didn't make second, you know, a second round team. Yeah, they're a second, second round, round team. team. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So you describe, I think I read you guys' breakdown of your prediction of the squads, and you described it, um, Southgate's approach as suffer ball. Mm-hmm. So where does that term come from, and how would you describe it in layman's terms? Oh, suffer ball? what suffer ball is. Suffer ball was a term coined uh, by a number of people smarter than me. Uh, there's a fantastic uh, newsletter writer called Grace Robinson that I, I heartily recommend to everyone. Uh, and she did a fantastic England retrospective before the Euros where she looked at every single England tournament uh, since of, of the 21st century, more or less. I, I thought it was fantastic. Uh, and she often uses the term sufferable. Sufferable is a style of football where you 
sacrifice a lot of attacking endeavor in order to control possession. So you are you will spend fifty. You know, in France play sufferable, and and then uh, Portugal play sufferable. Iran play sufferable. Um, there's there's I'd say there's six or seven teams at this World Cup that play sufferable, which is the concept of we don't care if we win one nil or if we win four nil. What we care about is we won. Uh, and a lot of this England team, this England team has a lot of attacking talent, but Southgate seems very reluctant to use them. Uh, and every time you watch England, there tends to be a 15 to 20 minute segment where they aren't playing football. You, you, your brain tends to wander and you start scrolling your phone a bit. But the, the point of that is they are keeping the ball away from the opposition and they're using it as a defensive tool. Just saying, you know, you know what? We're just going to stop you from scoring. It, it's, the, uh, it's the boring submission artist in MMA. <laughs> yeah, so that's going to be very, a very interesting tactic against Team USA, you know, when they meet in Group B. And I know you and I have been talking about doing something on that because it's such a fascinating idea. You know, this game is going to be watched all over the country whenever the World Cup starts. What does it mean for both nations? Obviously, England. England's history in the World Cup is well known. No one's going to debate that. But for Team USA, it's 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 kind of suspect. I mean, they <laughs> didn't qualify for the last World Cup. Well, not England. I made a mistake earlier. But it was Team USA that, that didn't qualify in 2018. Um, they come into the tournament, the youngest team in the tournament. Pulisic is their captain and their top scorer. Mm-hmm. He has, he's played kind of up and down for Chelsea this season. What do you think of the whole prospect of the game may the best man win shall we say <laughs> uh, I, th- I think i think the i think what you're gonna see is a lot of very excited chatter about this as our, right uh, we, we this you know we talk of the special relationship and how we're cross-atlantic cousins uh, but secretly <laughs> i think it might bubble up into a little bit of needle uh and some uh, i think the americans will make some jokes about tea uh, and and the british will probably make some mean jokes about healthcare but inflation yeah yeah (laughs) as it always happens uh in terms of the united states men's team i'm not sure and now i'll preface this with i it's become very apparent that i i i have a a relative blind spot when evaluating american players i can't I, i find it quite difficult to to separate the wheat from the chaff and and figure out what's hype and what's right. actually real. So I, there's been two or three times where I thought, ah, this player isn't very good. And then later on, I'm like, oh, actually, no, they're the real deal. So I, I've been, I have often been too slow to recognize talent of an American soccer player. And I, I apologize for that. But this matchup, I can't make heads or tails of it because this should be a game where England dominate possession. And at least if you compare the squads, this should be a fairly straightforward victory for England and if England don't I would be annoyed slash disappointed but there is because can you call this a derby can you call this a rivalry because it has that you know interesting half space the intangibles kick in and when the intangibles kick in yeah maybe maybe the United States can can put something together there Uh, as someone living in America right now what's the vibe about the, the US men's team's chances again on the group? I think it's hopeful, more so than anything, because American fans are, I guess, itching 
for, mm-hmm. for international football because of obviously they missed out on the last tournament, but a chance to prove themselves. Mm-hmm. I know Team USA likes, they really rely on their fullbacks and they like to get high up the pitch and against suffer ball. I'm not sure if that would be the greatest strategy because England's going to shut everything down. But I do anticipate, you know, Team USA trying to sit back, absorb the pressure, you know, play a lot of balls through Christian Pulisic and let him kind of be their their caca of, of, <laughs> of, of Team USA. <laughs> but um, the, Americans are excited. You know, they do know that they're going to also host their own World Cup Mm-hmm. years down the line and this is going to be a good place to showcase the progress of the MLS you know they've made some strides you know the news about Messi potentially joining Miami and and the MLS becoming a bigger and bigger sport I do think that England USA can be a testament to growth of the game mm-hmm. um, a celebration of the sport although it, it probably was going to end up England three USA nil. I, I do think that the fanfare, the fanfare leading up to it will be, will be sufficient in, in celebrating the game and and uh, on both sides. I'm I'm, I can't remember the last time England scored three goals. <laughs> no, tell a lie. I, I do remember the last time England scored three goals. It was against Germany in their last game. Tell a lie. It was a three yep. draw. Uh, but yeah, I I think this this I mean the group is full of some uh, interesting geopolitics to put it politely right. uh, England versus Wales will be a, will be a big game I know the, you know the Welsh national team will be fired oh up for that uh, England versus Iran will come with its own you know that's sufferable versus sufferable Carlos Quiro is, is the bane to, to Southgate's Batman so to speak uh, and then uh, Iran versus USA is his own I mean the last time those teams two teams played at World Cup it had its own Wikipedia page so that will come with its own thing there. I, my current prediction for that, that group, I'm not going to reveal because if I say it, I'm going to get yelled at. So I'm going to keep quiet. <laughs> <laughs> but you have Team USA finishing third. I think Iran might, well, Wales, honestly. I'm going to go England, Wales. Okay. Truthfully. I don't, I think England, Wales, I think that's going to be, it'll be, it'll be close, but I mean, all groups are naturally close to the next thing if you go to, Second True. and third, and True. B- but I do think that Wales has just enough to squeak by. But I wanted to ask you, because of the World Cup, because of the global stage, there is going to be you know, discussions of racism in the sport. Mm-hmm. How do you see that? How do you see Qatar as kind of the base for that in terms of getting the message out? Do you anticipate you know, any incidents? You know, has the game progressed enough? I know I, I listened to Roshane talk to Rio about about racism in, in the sport and, and if they've come a long way. And he said that there's been growth, but there's still a very long way to go. Where do you see that trending towards as the World Cup comes closer and closer? That's a really big question. That's probably an hour long podcast in its own right. Uh, I mean, shout out to Roshane Thomas first. He's just interviewed with Fernand about racism homophobia and all other form and other forms of right. bigotry in the game and i think that's a great interview you should check that out on the FX as well in terms of i mean what do you expect uh i think football right now 
uh, and I'm, I'm putting asterisks and caveats and upward inflections in what I'm trying to say. I think English football has has been has got better at spotting overt cases of racism, uh, and and English football has a decent understanding of very obvious cases of racism, and and they're very and England English football has got a lot better at understanding there is provocation, there is abuse, and there is also racist abuse, and how that escalates and how one is different from the other and different from the other. Uh, in, in terms of continental Europe, I think sometimes those lines can get blurry, uh, blurrier, I should say. Um, there, there's been two or three instances in Italian football where um, people who have committed racist abuse don't seem to quite understand how racist abuse is different from, say, abusing someone for their hair colour or whether the marital status of their parents when they were born. Okay, I'm Blah, blah, blah. Uh, and then on top of that, there you know you, you go around the world and there's different whatnot, uh, and that's about overt racism, right? That's that's the very obvious right. racism. That's that's the racism of when someone throws a face, banana. Right. Yeah, that's that's the racism of when someone throws a banana at a black player, as we've seen uh, when Tunisia played Brazil and Paris. Uh, someone thought it was okay to throw a banana at Richarlison, and and then. That was very swiftly condemned by the Tunisian FA, by the Brazilian FA, by people in Paris and whatever. Everyone, I think football's getting better at going, no, you don't throw a banana. No, you don't do a monkey chant. And everyone's got a lot quicker at condemning that when that happens. So that's good. And that's a progress that hasn't necessarily been there for the past 50 years of football. I think the less overt, insidious forms of racism, that is, that we've still got a long way to go there. So... Right. Something that makes me really happy is that this is the this this World Cup. Every African team at this World Cup is is managed by an African coach. Uh, and For sure. so, and you go, what's that got to do with racism? Uh, uh, well, there's there's like a there's like a very pernicious form of almost neo-colonialism where there's a lot of um, I'd say European coaches in, in their sort of second retirement getting getting head coach head coaching jobs in Africa uh, and that seems to be right. going away or you might watch a world cup game uh, and a player who is 5 foot 9 uh, but 5 foot 9 about technical ability might get described as being about pace and power and that's an insidious form of racism uh, and right. i think those are the those bits are the the next frontier i think we will i think the fact that the world cup is is hosted in in the middle east in qatar um, will bring with it its own form of insidious racism, insidious xenophobia, as there is the quite legitimate conversation to be had about migrant worker rights and how these stadiums were built and who who is allowed to feel safe at Qatar and who is being respected by Qatar and the authorities there. And then there's the... Uh, <laughs> less considered conversation which will drift into what academics used to refer to as orient orientalism right you know it's the when you watch a hollywood movie and they go to mexico and they put a yellow tint over the screen why do you do that um and like that that sort of yellow tint might happen at qatar at, at this qatar world cup and you might go that is that appropriate 
should we not be having a more sensible adult conversation about what is and isn't? Exactly. Um, and I think that that will be a, a real sort of difficult task to thread the needle. And to, to, to a number of the journalists that are going out there, I wish you good luck. Did you get any sort of that same parallel when you talked to, you know, well, when you when you wrote on Uriah Rennie and being the last black referee to coach in the English top flight, do you do you see any, I guess, similarities in things that they had to deal with or kind of the underlying tones of racism? Because, you know, that's an astonishing stat in itself, the fact that it's been almost 15 years and we haven't seen a black referee in English top flight football and... Yeah, so this was a piece I've I've been I've been trying to get done for for a while now. In that Uri Rennie, as you said, was the last black referee to referee in the Premier, to referee a Premier League game in in two thousand eight. Uh, and what I initially planned to do was to write a very straightforward "What's Uri Rennie up to?" piece. I I, I tried finding him, uh, and I, I looked to interview him. And what you know, like I'm sure you do all the time, Kelly, is you try writing one story, and what you find out is you end up right. writing another. Uh, and what I found was you know, I ended up talking to Uri Rennie's collaborator on, on on one of his books, who was also a referee. And we, and we got into a really interesting conversation as to why aren't there black referees in the Premier League in the last 15, 14, 15 years, which then became a wider question as to where are the black referees in England across the pyramid, across the up team levels of football in, in the United Kingdom and in England in particular, which brought me in conversation with a, a brilliant gentleman called Russell Hoyt, who referees at level five. Um, or re- level five, the level being the level of the referee, not the level of the league, I should say. And what we found there was, again, in uh, well, the examples given to me by Ashley Hicks and Lovis were of the covert, the insidious racism. So, so yes, you know, being a black referee or being a black authority figure in football has approached to has approached the point where yeah, you're not you're probably not going to get racist abuse or the overt sort of you know a football player isn't going to call you a monkey if you yellow card them. But the description, right. you know, I mean, hopefully that won't happen. But some of the things that happened to Ashley uh, several years ago, he was describing going to a referee's assessment and people being annoyed that he had an earring or or they would pass a comment about the fact that he had a high top uh, that's and that's insane. and that's that's the insidious racism that's that's the that's the racism th- racist thinking where you don't even necessarily know you're doing racist thinking but you are thinking of someone differently because of their physical appearance and, and their skin color and i think that was a real question and we really broke that down you know why why are black why are there less black referees at the bottom of the pyramid so to speak why is there a relative glass ceiling uh glass basement not even a glass ceiling for 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 referees which you know that's to be linked to socioeconomic reasons as well becoming a referee is expensive um and at a time where refereeing in general there's not there's not enough referees uh, and the money isn't great being a referee it's it's very much a vocation what that often means is people from marginalized backgrounds uh, and marginalized socioeconomic circumstances tend to drop out early. So you eventually reach a point where even if you wanted to hire the best person for the job, at a certain price level, the best person for the job all come from a similar background because they could afford it. 
if that makes sense. Right. Um, and I think there's there's definitely work to be done. Ashley struck a optimistic tone, um, and and I've been speaking to Russell since the piece has gone out, and I think something good might be happening soon as well. Yeah, it, it was it was the sort of piece that strikes a chord, and I think it's should win an award somewhere. So I was very I was very pleased that you were able to kind of go down that because you're you're one that likes to go down rabbit holes right and so <laughs> i think that was i think that was a good one for you to just kind of kind of spread your wings a little bit um but whatever happens in the world cup is going to be a fascinating time we're going to follow all your coverage on the athletic follow your coverage on manchester united thank you carl for coming on today um look forward to this episode coming out you guys follow us on apple podcast spotify wherever you get your podcast and we'll see you next week